Well, today we're going to be covering a lot of stuff, so get ready. Get ready to turn in your Bibles to a lot of different places, but we're going to be primarily focused in on Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. And today uh, I get a chance uh, every six to eight weeks to to be, in, to be able to equip our church in areas of biblical counseling and topics and how, the, how are we to practically apply the Word of God to the issues of life. But today I'm going to focus in on just what is biblical counseling. I think we take it for granted even in our church, but even among our church I often hear some of the statements or questions about a confusion of who is supposed to do it, what is counseling biblically, or maybe I understand how to, that we are supposed to counsel biblically, but am I supposed to be a part of this? Is this something separate? All those questions come from various times, and I thought, well, let's just answer them all together. How about that? So today, we're going to be focused on four basic things. Number one, what biblical counseling is not. Sometimes to define what it is, we've got to also really know what it's not what biblical counseling is, and who is responsible for doing it. What it is and who is responsible for doing it, and then how do we prepare. We're going to be looking at all those aspects today as we look through God's Word, and God's Word is actually very clear on these things, and I think it'll be very helpful to us. That is my prayer, at least. That'll be a very helpful time for us this morning. So let's begin. We've got a lot of ground to cover. So what biblical counseling is not, what it is not. It is not an activity reserved for the experts. Biblical counseling is not an activity reserved for the experts. Unfortunately, over the past hundred years, the church has given the, given the idea of counseling a Gnostic flavor, something that is reserved for an expert. What do I mean by Gnostic flavor? Well, Gnosis, where we get the term Gnosticism, which was a heresy that was constantly battled in the early church, Gnosis means a knowing or a knowledge of. And so Gnosticism, literally, it was a cult based on having a special personal knowledge. It was a secret higher knowledge above Scripture necessary for enlightenment, something further and beyond or added to Scripture to really be able to handle this. And we see that among our churches today, that when someone has an issue of depression, that Scripture is not by itself sufficient that I must, be, I must need to go to a professional somewhere to really deal with this. Or I'm really struggling with panic attacks and anxiety, and I know that God's Word is sufficient for many things, but I don't think it's sufficient for this thing. And even, unfortunately, pastors among the church today have that viewpoint, that Scripture itself is something different than and not uh, sufficient for these types of things. And so, unfortunately, we've given it this Gnostic flavor among our churches, and that's not what the Scriptures tell us. So who are the experts, then? If, if we do have that viewpoint, if Scripture does give us this uh, viewpoint of going outside of the, the Bible, which it does not, but let's just say it did, well, who are those experts? Well, the experts that we would see in our society today would be those of the psychologists, psychiatrists, counselors, so on and so forth, Right? So then we got to ask some questions. Okay, if they're, if they're supposed to be the experts, what's, what's their epistemology? In other words, how do they claim to know what they know? What is this higher knowledge that they have, if that were to be true? Which I say again, it is not. Well, here's, what they, here's how they claim to know what they know. I want to introduce us to this concept of four different levels of knowledge that we see within our society. Okay? This is how all knowledge comes to be. The first level is intuition. All of us understand that. Intuition is what we feel. And how someone feels becomes the standard of truth. We see that going on in our society quite a bit right now, don't we? That objective truth no longer is true. How we feel is true. There was a time when that wasn't accepted. Or that wasn't acceptable for knowledge. And this is the lowest form of knowledge. How we feel about something doesn't really tell us anything about that something. It just tells us how we feel about that something. Right? There's no actual truth there. Level two 
Another, uh, another standard of knowledge or another level, this one's a little bit better, and this is reason and observation. Reason and observation is somewhat better than intuition because it's at least taking time to observe what's happening with certain situations. And this is where most of our social sciences live, psychology being one of those. Right? We, we have a hypothesis of how people would interact or act in certain things, and we're going to put a experiment together to see how they all act and react together and then we're going to make observations and reasoning based upon how they respond problem with that is that still doesn't tell us why they respond the way they respond and we're left to make theories and observations right empiricism is the next higher form of knowledge and this is where we get hard sciences from empirical data this is where we can go one step further with our observations and actually do an experiment to test those observations and get some sort of um, technical understanding of what that would be. This is better. This is a much better form of knowledge. And in God's general grace, some of this knowledge we use today. And as a Christian, it's good and faithful to use, right? But the highest form of knowledge is revelation. The highest form of knowledge is God's word. Revelation is, is the highest form of knowledge. And there's two categories when it comes to God's revelation. First is his general revelation. God has disclosed the truth about himself to all people through creation and their consciousness. The reason why I read Psalm 19 to open up, we saw that in that, right? Like in his creation, as heavens declare his his handiwork. Romans 1, 20 says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. Right, God's revelation has been disclosed to all creation, but if you read further in Romans 1, man suppresses the truth. But we're without excuse. Even those who would deny God's existence were without excuse. See, there is no true atheist. There's no true atheist because God has revealed himself to everyone through their conscience and creation. There's an active suppression of the truth. There's an active suppression. But God has generally revealed himself. And that's where I spoke about earlier with empirical data. We can, we can take people who may not honor the Lord, but have taken the time and to do experiments and things that show us some truths about our bodies and certain things, and we can certainly look to those things for help. That's not wrong of us to look at, but that doesn't go above God's revelation. Secondly, and, and, and more importantly, I think, in God's revelation is his specific revelation. His specific revelation. God has dis disclosed truth through Scripture and more technically through Christ himself, right? John 1, 1 through 3 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was, in, he was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. This is speaking about Christ or 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21 says, For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased, we ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which, you do, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this shows us where we get our revelation specifically it's through the prophets of God, but through Christ himself who confirmed all those scriptures. 
This word of God, this Bible that we have is sufficient. It is from God. And we hold this version of knowledge above all else. Everything else submits to the revelation of God. So let's look at the experts again, and they rely on reason and observation, the second level of knowledge. And these are theories made by observation. So how do we know if the reason or the observations are true? Well, you would have to do more research and and you would have to do more experiments to be able to prove those things without a shadow of a doubt to be true. And that is not typically done in the world of psychology. I'll give you another example. In empirical data with, with much science, when research is able to be proven, the understanding, understanding narrows and unifies, meaning more and more doctors and scientists become more and more on the same page about that particular subject, about what the causes are and what the, what the cure would be. It doesn't broaden. Does that make sense? Well, I was reading in a book by Michael Emlett called Crosstalk, Where Life and Scripture Meet. And he, he says in there, this was in 2017, that there was as many as 230 different theories of counseling. The longer and the more psychology and counseling has been practiced, the more and more schools of thought that have been created over time. They're not becoming more narrowed, it's becoming more broadened, becoming more confused. If you ever just go on psychology.com or any of the places where the different articles are being written, you will find psychologists constantly disagreeing with and infighting with one another all the time. There is no unifying theories because none of these theories have ever been able to be proven. It's not based on empirical data. It's based on reason and observation. And then we have to ask the question, why does it continue to get more and more broad? Well, we have to go to their anthropology. When we talk about how do they claim to know what they know, we have to go to the very beginnings and the underpinnings of their belief and their anthropology, their study of man, specifically where does man come from, is built off of that they do not believe that God exists or that man was created by God. So therefore, the foundation of the knowledge, the foundation of the theories is apart from God's special and specific revelation. So what this tells us is that we should not have a pristine outlook on science and research. Unsafe theorists and scientists are not morally neutral in their life or occupation. They have a hostile mindset against Christ and agenda that seeks to suppress the truth of Christ. There is no such thing as neutrality in mankind. The Bible is very clear that you're either of the world, in the world, following the prince of the power of the world, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, or you're in the kingdom of God, slave to Christ, following the one true king. There is no neutralities. We have to be careful. Go to 1 Corinthians with me, chapter 2, or yeah, 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 16. Look what Paul says about this. Paul says, Yet among the mature we do not impart wisdom. We do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which decreed from the ages of our glory, of, of for our glory. None of the rulers in this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. 
The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This shows us there is no neutrality. The natural man does not accept the things of God, but they are folly to him. We have to be careful to have this pristine outlook on science and research. I'm not saying there's not a place for it. We'll get there in a moment. But the word of God trumps all. The word of God is sufficient to to guide us in all things. And we have to see it that way. So therefore, it's not seeking to integrate secular theories of interpretation and change with what the Holy Spirit teaches in the word of God concerning salvation and sanctification. This is why we cannot have an integrated theory of counseling. What I mean by that is combining psychology, psychology and theories of psychology into what the word of God already tells us as if that is gonna give us a better way. The word of God is sufficient. If you hear nothing else from me this morning, the word of God is sufficient for all things. The question is, are we prepared to, to walk in the word of God and utilize the word of God in all things? And we're gonna talk about how do we prepare ourselves in that way as well. But we do not need some higher knowledge to understand the things of the heart, the things that God has designed the areas that God has authority, he is the authority, period. There's no continuation of that statement. God is the authority. Second Corinthians 10, three through five says, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of, not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. This is how we combat the situations of sin and falsehoods of this world. Once again, where God has spoken with authority, we submit to his authority. So we don't run to the experts. The word of God is sufficient. It's also not simplistic or void of the gospel. It's also not simplistic or void of the gospel. What we're not advocating for here is just a verse and a prayer. That's an abuse of what biblical counseling would be. If you're coming in with real hardships, there's a dynamic of the human heart that has so many implications and so many affluences and influences over your entire life. Beliefs that have been shaped, hurts that have happened, trauma that may have happened. And what we're not advocating for is this caricature of biblical counseling that would say, well, here's a Bible verse. Let me pray for you. You should be all good. Send you on your way. That's not what we're saying. That's not what the Bible even tells us to do. It's also not uncaring. Colossians 3, 12 through 13 says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, and meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Kindness. Humility, meekness, patience. There's more to ministering the word of God, which is really what counseling is, than just a quick Bible verse and a prayer. And some of you have experienced that and it's been called biblical counseling. That's also not true. It's also not focusing on behavior modification. Matthew 23, verse 27 Jesus says this to the Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. The Bible prescribes for us to minister the word to the heart, 
And as the heart changes, as we repent of idols, as we put away sin, as we put away falsehood, we begin to be renewed from the inside out. Yes, behavior change happens, and it is expected to happen, but it comes from the place of worship through the heart, not just merely cleaning up the outside. The Lord is not impressed by you showing up on Sunday with your best clothes on, singing the same songs, praying the same prayers, pretending like everything's okay, and pretending like you're righteous and walking out and not being changed at all. We might be impressed. We might even be fooled. But God knows the heart, and he's not impressed. That's not what the Bible tells us. It's also not seeking to ignore or remedy true and proven medical issues. As we talked about earlier, we don't want to have a pristine idea of research and science, but it's also not just throwing that stuff to the side as if that's not part of God's general revelation, right? 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 tells us, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We all deal with afflictions in this life. Our bodies are wasting away. Our physical does impact our spiritual, and our spiritual does impact our physical. They're all connected. God created it all, and we do want to consider those things. If you're coming in and you're feeling like you're dragging and down and depressed, we would tell you if you come to see us at the Nehemiah Project to go have a physical. But we also need to deal with your heart. But also, let's go get a physical and see if there's something going on in your blood work or something like that. Knowing that God created all of it. So it's not ignoring physical things. It's not ignoring proven medical data. It's not ignoring especially empirical data. Because we do live in a sinful fallen world and our bodies are decaying. And that does have an impact. And so we do want to consider that as we're counseling one another. But that doesn't replace the heart, even if there is something physically happening. We still need to deal with the matters of the heart because a lot of times we respond to our sufferings with sin. And we still have to deal with that too. And so we deal with all of it in that, in that way. It's also not leaving out the gospel of Jesus Christ, nor is it dealing with only one aspect of it. For example, emphasizing only one's union in Christ or one's communion with Christ. The epistles are often um, laid out this way. We, we first have the union aspect, the identity of Christ, the doctrines of who God is in the beginning of the epistle, and the second half then is Christian living in response to that, Right? Ephesians, for instance, you can take that one and break it apart. Ephesians 1 through 3 would be dealing with the union aspect with Christ, justification, what Christ has done, the go- that part of the gospel. But then Ephesians 4 through 6 would be, so therefore, here's how we walk this out. In light of this, this is how we live now, sanctification. So we want to deal with all aspects of the gospel in our counseling as Christians and brothers and sisters in Christ. The justification, which is the union with Christ, that part of the gospel reminding us that because God is holy and he created us in his image for his glory, but because we disobeyed God, Adam being the first to do so, separates us from God, and the penalty for that, for that sin, breaking the law of God, is death, spiritual death and physical death, being separated from God forever in a place called hell, and God's wrath being on us. But justification is a judicial term that when we put our faith in Christ, he justifies us before a holy God. Our sin is imputed or accredited to Christ on the cross where he paid for it and his righteousness becomes imputed upon us, making us good in the eyes of God. He's a perpetuation for our sin, meaning he saves us from the wrath of God. That's a very important aspect of the gospel. But that's not it. We don't stop there. Because there's a communion aspect of the gospel. Sanctification, where we, from that point of being saved by God, we now begin to walk with God. Evidence of being saved and justified before a holy father is sanctification, meaning we're trying now to walk with him. 
First Peter three or first Peter one, 16 and 17 reminds us that we should be holy because he is holy. He has called us to be holy vessels. He's called us to be like Christ. That's part of the Christian walk and we must not remove that part of the gospel. But oftentimes we do remove that and we only focus on the first part, the justification part, because it's a lot of times selfishly motivated. Oh, I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to go, I don't want my sin to, to mean that I have to go to hell. So therefore I believe in Christ, but I have no desire to really change my life. And, we, and oftentimes being told that that's okay. That's not okay. It's also not only focusing on the sanctification portion as if like the Pharisees, we can just clean our lives up on our own, knowing that we need the Holy Spirit of God in us to change us and grow us. But there's also the third aspect of the gospel that often isn't even thought about, but it's glorification. Which that one day, the final union and communion come together as we go and be with Christ in heaven forever. See, justification saves us from the penalty of sin. Sanctification removes the power of sin and glorification removes us from the presence of sin. That's the full gospel. That's the gospel that the Bible tells us about. That's what is true for us. And that must be considered in all areas of life. That has implication in all areas of our lives. We see this all over. Paul in Philippians 12 and 13, right? We work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it's him who wills and works for his good pleasure. Justification, sanctification. Philippians 3, right? We forget what lies behind and we strive for the upward call of Christ, glorification. It's all there and we're gonna see that in our passage today in, in Colossians. When we're counseling, we can't forget any aspect of the gospel. We never move away from the gospel, we just grow deeper in it. And when we're struggling with issues of sin, that's great hope for us because the gospel is the power for change. We actually have hope as believers that we can be different, that we are different. Second Corinthians 5, 17, you're a new creation. The old is gone and new, the new has come. There is an expectation for change, not only just a hope, and that he is with us in it. But oftentimes we don't really want to change, to be quite honest. And so we want to, we want to just set aside these things that when we talk about biblical counseling, these are not what we're talking about. These would be falsehoods of it. That's what it's not. So now let's focus the majority of our time on what it is and who is responsible for doing it. What is biblical counseling and who is responsible for doing it? Let's go to Colossians chapter three. This is <clears throat> our main passage where we are going to spend most of our time when we're gonna be looking at verses one through 17. Colossians chapter three, one through 17. says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self which, with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, 
bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So when we look at this term for biblical counseling, once again, there's been this idea that it's something different, something different than the Christian walk. And I wanna share with you where do we get this idea from the scriptures for biblical counseling. And we get this idea of counseling, it comes from the Greek word, nuthateo. Nuthateo, which means to admonish, warn, counsel, exhort. And we see this word translated often in the scriptures as either admonish or, and or warn. It means to admonish through instruction. Literally, it means to put into mind to put into mind, especially appeals to the mind supplying doctrinal and spiritual substance. This exerts positive pressure or a, someone's logic reasoning, urging them to choose God or to choose God's best. It, it doesn't strictly mean to chastise, though it can be involved. It means to to warn or to instruct or to put into mind the word of God. And we see that all throughout scripture. Just a few places in the New Testament that we find this same word that you can go and back and read on your own, one of them being Colossians 3, is Acts 20, verse 31, Romans 15, 14, 1 Corinthians 4, 14, Colossians 1, 28, Colossians 3:16, 1 Thessalonians 5:12 and 14, which we will get to as we continue through our 1 Thessalonians study, and 2 Thessalonians 3:15. The scriptures tell us to do this. This is not an option. I want us to see that today. This is not an option. This is not reserved for the experts. This is part of the walk with Christ. This is part of the discipleship of the believers. When we're told in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this is part of it. It's a necessary ministry of the word. It's not a separate ministry. It's not an optional ministry. It's not nice that we have it or if we don't have it. It is what we are called to do. And I want us to see that this morning. So with Colossians here, I want to give us a quick brief background. I always want to be expository in my explanation, although time is not going to permit a real deep dive into all this because we could be here for a few weeks. But I want to give us the, the high points. And um, my time's already like halfway gone. So it's amazing how quick an hour will go, right? So just a quick background of Colossians. Paul is the author, and we also see Timothy here with him in the first chapter. Colossae was a city in Phrygia in the Roman province of Asia, modern Turkey, about 100 miles east of Ephesus. Colossae's population was mainly Gentile, but there was also a large Jewish settlement there. The founder of, Col of Colossae, of the Colossian church, was actually not Paul, but Epaphras that we see in verse 1, 5 through 7. During Paul's three-year ministry that you can see in Acts 19 in Ephesus, Epaphras was saved and returned home to plant the church in Colossae, which is pretty awesome, right? We see through Paul's ministry uh, the first church plant here in the scriptures where someone is saved, raised up, discipled, and he goes off and starts this church that Paul later writes this letter to. But heresy had been plaguing this church in Colossae because we had both the Jewish legalism and we had pagan mysticism that was all swirling around in this body. And then several years after the church was founded, a dangerous heresy arose known as Gnosticism, which I touched on earlier 
in this sermon. Gnosticism basically believed this, and there was many different forms of it, and there's a lot, and if you're in uh, Mike's Sunday school class, you've probably been talking about it. But basically it's this. God is good, but matter is evil, was a basic belief. That Jesus Christ was merely one of a series of emanations descending from God and being less than God, a belief that led them to deny his true humanity, and that a secret higher knowledge above Scripture was necessary for enlightenment and salvation. And they were battling this heresy. Just like I, I said earlier, we battle that even with this idea of biblical counseling as it is supposed to be something other than or needing more higher knowledge to do and, it, and that the word is not sufficient. That would be a form of Gnosticism and we have to be very careful. Colossians, much like Ephesians, was split up with first doctrinal instruction, verse, or chapters one and two, and then practical exhortation, verse, uh, chapters three and four. And so Colossians 1, 17, 1 through 17 is about the Christian conduct in light of doctrinal exhortation. Counseling is a part of Christian conduct, okay? Us counseling one another, admonishing one another, is part of Christian conduct. So I've kind of broken down this passage since we're talking about counseling today to counseling biblically requires certain aspects. And we're gonna look through this passage and see what the word of God says. So to counsel biblically first, you have to be a new creation in Christ yourself. You must be a new creation in Christ yourself. Look at verses one through four. If then you have been raised with Christ. That's a big if. If then. Meaning, you can't do this unless you are in Christ yourself. So if you're here today and you're not a believer in Christ, good news, you can't do this. There's no expectation for you to, right? I would implore you to become a Christian. I would implore you to put your faith in Jesus Christ. But for those of us who are here who are in Christ, then this is for us. So if then you have been raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things on this earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Speaking of his resurrection. We see all aspects of the gospel in these first four verses. We see his justification, right? Verse 1a, if then you have been raised with Christ... If then you are in Christ, if then you have been saved, if then you have been justified before a holy God, then be sanctified. Verse 2b, right? Then seek the things that are above. This is what you do. Then seek Christ. Grow in Christ. Understand who you are to be in Christ. Be sanctified in Christ is another way you could say that, right? And then we see glorification in 2b and in verse 4, right? Set the, seek the things that are above. And then verse four, or verse four, when Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Glorification. Paul is not leaving out any aspect of the gospel here. It's all here. It's all here for us to see. And we cannot counsel biblically unless we ourselves are in the gospel, are saved through faith. And the gospel allows us to see and understand the spiritual truths and have wisdom that comes through a true fear of the Lord. It's also our confidence to counsel faithfully. It's our confidence to be able to admonish one another because it's not about us. It's about he who is in us. And if you are in Christ and he is in you, then you can do this. You yourself can be sanctified and you can help others be sanctified. Number two, you have to grow in the understanding of God's word in order to be able to do this. Kind of retroactively going back into the first four verses here, but verse two really lays this out for us. Set your minds on the things that are above, not the things that are on earth. In order for you to counsel biblically, you have to grow in understanding of God's word. And we're gonna talk more specifically about that in a moment. 
But how can you give away what you don't understand? How can you give away what you don't practice? How can you give away what's not already deep in your heart? How can you recognize what you should admonish one in if you're not living for him? You must grow in your understanding of God's word. We were never meant to stay babies in the faith. And some of you are all too comfortable there. And that is sin. When you first come to know Christ, you are a new creation. You are a baby in Christ. But if you go to Ephesians 4 and many other passages, you are to be equipped by the elders, the pastors, one another, so that you would grow in maturity. It's an expectation. It's an expectation that we grow in our understanding of Christ. And you have to understand that. You all give yourselves way too much grace in this area. A grace that the Lord isn't giving. We have grace, but there's an expectation that we grow in our understanding of who Christ is and we grow in our walk with God. That's expected by God. How could the Holy Spirit of God live inside of you and you not be changed? That should give you a little bit of pause if you haven't changed over the past few years. Because if you go to 1 John and you read that faithfully, what 1 John would say is maybe you don't actually know him. That you shouldn't be deceived with that. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling, Paul says. James says, you, you say you have faith by your works. I'll show you my faith through my works. Be careful. We must grow in our understanding of who God is. But this is great hope. Without the Holy Spirit, we are lost and unable to understand anything from God. But with the Holy Spirit, in Christ, you are able to minister the word of God to your own heart, and to others. And this is a great hope for us. Great hope. This debunks the Gnostic ideas that there is some secret knowledge that only spiritual elites have or experts have. We're advocating a model any believer willing to be like the Bereans can follow. That's why I read that passage earlier, but I'll read it again. Acts 17, 10 through 12. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. If we're willing to have that sort of attitude, you can do this. If this is who you are, you can do this. And it would be absurd to think that God, if he requires this, would not give the believer the tools to be able to do it. That would be a very low view of God. And I don't have a low view of God, and I hope you don't either. Number three, you have to put to death the sin that is in your life. You have to put to death the sin that's in your life in order to do this. It's an expectation, but it's also a pre-requirement. This is a conscious effort to kill the sin that remains in you. Verses 5 through 11. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, bar barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. Notice this past tense. In these you too once walked. Here's that expectation again. If you were in Christ, putting off the old self is an expectation. It's not to say that you have to be perfect. None of us who came to know the Lord were perfect. Quite the opposite. But if you have the Holy Spirit, it is an expectation that that would be past tense. That you once walked fallen, fallen this world. But now we are to put these things off. So in the gospel, there is a great hope for change. It's an expectation for change. We can change. We can help others change. But this requires repentance. The putting off and the putting on, which we see in this whole passage, 
right? We see the process of counseling right here. Here's the gospel. Here's who Christ is. Therefore, put off, put on. Repentance. Renew your mind in what's true and put on and walk in the things of Christ. He's showing it to us right here in this passage. And this is an expectation of being a Christian. It's an expectation. Number four, you must put on the character of Christ through obedience to his word. You must put on the character of Christ through obedience to his word. I love, put on then as God's chosen ones. Man, there's such loaded truth in that. That is God who saved you. That is God who's changing you. That is God who's empowering you. It is God who's doing all of it as God's chosen ones. Put it on then. It's a reminder of the gospel. Putting on the things of God is evidence of true salvation. That should be a joy for us to put on the things of God. This requires heart change. This requires repenting of idolatry. This requires repenting of lusting after this world that is wasting away, but beginning to see God and the things of God as good and pure and wonderful, right? This is heart change. And that heart change results in behavior change. This is what putting it on looks like. So put it on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. God has to grow that in you, but that's an expectation to have, right? Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. This is who we are to be. These are the markers of a true Christian. And these are the things that not only can we be, but we are expected to be. But not in your own doing, in your own white knuckling, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. As you repent and submit to the word of God. As you humbly repent and obey the word of God. He grows these things in us, which is why we have the hope. And above all, agape, love, that word agape, the love that is divine love, the love that only a Christian can have, which is characteristic of God himself. Only we can have it because the Holy Spirit lives within us. The world cannot experience this type of love. They're only exhibited by those who are in Christ. This is the type of love that's the ascent of the will or the love of choice, choosing to love as we have been loved. Truth in love is the conduct that we're called to. We're to lovingly counsel one another, lovingly admonish one another, lovingly call out the sin in each other's lives. Which gets us to point number five. You admonish through instruction of the word of God. You admonish through the instruction of the word of God. This appeals to the mind, right? This is putting into mind. This requires sound doctrine. 1 Timothy 6, 3-4, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions. The word of Christ must dwell in you richly. Let the, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing, there's that word, nuteo, one another, uh, admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Anoikio is the word there for dwell. It means to indwell, being settled, and indwelling having the word of God in you deeply and richly so that you would admonish one another. That's what he's calling us to here. This is part of the Christian conduct. This is part of the discipleship of a Christian. This is who we are called to be. And it's right here plainly for us in scripture. And then number six, I need to move quickly. Above all, you must desire the glory of God. The motivation for all this is God's glory. Worship is the motivation Verse 17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 
This is what motivates us, is God's glory, the worship of God. ACBC, which is an organization, the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, has a great definition that just kind of sums all this up, and we'll get to who's to do it, although we've kind of talked about that already. It says, biblical counseling is the personal discipleship ministry of God's people to others under the oversight of God's church, dependent upon the authority and sufficiency of God's word through the work of the Holy Spirit. Biblical counseling seeks to reorient disordered thoughts, desires, affections, behaviors, and worship toward God-designed anthropology in an effort to restore people to a right fellowship with God and others. This is accomplished by speaking the truth in love and applying scripture to the need of the moment by comforting the suffering and calling sinners to repentance, thus working to make them mature as they abide in Jesus Christ. It's a very good summary, a very good definition of what biblical counseling is. So who is responsible? Every Christian is responsible. That's who's responsible. Every single person in this room who calls yourself a Christian is responsible to counsel. Elders are responsible to instruct and to be able to counsel biblically. One thing that I wanna just make very clear to all of us, because we have a biblical counseling ministry called the Nehemiah Project that serves our church in the community. Mike and I are primarily and first elders of this church. This is not a separate organization that we work for. This is not an organization that's separated from our church. This is an organization that was created and designed because this is necessary for the church. This is created for our church and for the community. I am first a pastor here. Mike is first a pastor here. The people that work at Nehemiah Project who are growing and understanding how to counsel biblically and have more skills to help the church must be members here. This is for our church, and we exist to help serve our community. We are here, and we were responsible to instruct the church to be able to do this. That's why, one of the biggest reasons why we designed it. The Nehemiah Project, we spent a lot of our time educating. We have an internship program for people who wanna grow further in this. We do seminars, we do these sermons, we do so many different things to equip you to be able to do this so you can be faithful in this, right? First Thessalonians 5.12, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Ephesians 4.11-16, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried around by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is properly working makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is our job. This is what we're here to do is to equip us for this. Colossians 1, 28. This is Paul and Timothy speaking to the Colossians. Him we proclaim, and by the way, Paul an apostle, Timothy an elder of the Ephesians church, telling these, warning, there's admonishing, there's nutheteo, everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I think we have to really, I really wanted to dispel that idea of that Gnostic flavor as if counseling is not something that we, sh we should do or have to do. That it's nice if we have it. That's not true. We have to do this. We have to do this. And it's my job to make sure we know how to do this. That's what I'm called before the Lord to do that. That's why we have Sunday school classes introducing what biblical counseling is, why we have all these things to help equip us. It is not optional, it's necessary. And then secondly, the church is to counsel one another as part of discipleship. You are held responsible to do this. It's not an optional ministry. Everyone counsels, by the way. And I just wanna prove it to you. When your friend calls you and they are struggling with sin, the next thing that comes out of your mouth is counseling. When your kids are hurting and they come running to you 
and have questions, the next thing that comes out of your mouth is counseling. When someone loses a family member and they're grieving, the next thing you say to them is counseling. When your friend is in a fight with their spouse and they're thinking about divorce, the next advice you give is counseling. The only question is, was it biblical? Was what you said biblical next? It better be, because you're gonna be held responsible for it. Am I getting through to you the emphasis of how important this is? I hope so. How do we prepare? Now that we know it's necessary to prepare, how do we prepare? Well, we first have to grow in our understanding of God and his word. Dr. Scott has this great um, theological pyramid outline for us I want to show us. This is how to help us grow in our theological understanding, right? Level one, that first level, is we must begin to understand the canonical scriptures, these scriptures that we have, this Bible that you have. You have to read it, know it, understand it, which then leads to level two. We then seek to understand the canonical scripture through the literal, grammatical, historical method of exegesis. We've talked about that, agnosium, we're not gonna stop talking about it. We're gonna keep teaching you that. We have to understand the science of interpretation. What is the author's intent? And we get that authorial intent through this method of exegesis. And then as you begin to understand what the scriptures say, level three, from the exegesis of the canonical text, we engage in the discipline of biblical theology by formulating propositional doctrinal statements. You know that big doctrinal statement that you all had to sign as members of this church? This is why. You need to know what you believe. It's helpful. Then level four, the propositions of biblical theology are correlated topically to produce a systematic theology. Who is God? Who is Christ? So on and so forth. And if you've been on Sunday evenings, Pastor Sam's been teaching you these things. Take advantage. And then level five, building up a thorough system, building upon a thorough systematic theology, we may arrive at practical theology, conclusions about life, which is where counseling resides. You gotta know all this stuff, and you better know it all. And this is not necessarily a step-by-step process. You can learn all this sort of simultaneously as you're being matured, but we must know all these things. Now, if you're sitting here being like, I don't know if I can handle every situation that comes across. It's okay, we'll get there in a moment. We're gonna be helpful, but I just want you to understand we need to know this stuff. But I wanna help you understand as well, levels one through four of that pyramid is not biblical counseling. Or sorry, level five without levels one through four is not biblical counseling. You can't do practical theology by itself. Biblical counseling is not just a generic system with scripture sprinkled all over it. It's not just the ABCs of Christian life or a launch pad to sanctification. And those that teach that are not truly biblical. Too many people without theological training are telling the church how to change and grow. The problem is the formation of their models. You can't be completely confident of the results of the natural mind studying natural man. We've talked about that already. We have to understand that Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? For counseling to be considered truly biblical, scripture must be the origin of it and have an active and functional control on any methods of change and growth we use. We don't need the world to tell us how to change. God already did. But levels one through four without level five is also incomplete and ineffective. Theology was never given in a vacuum. Our job is not to simply dispense the word, but to minister the word. We've been in a battle for the Bible for many years. First, it was a battle with liberals on the issue of inspiration. Then it was a battle over the issue of inerrancy. Today, the battle is with those who say the Bible is only sufficient for matters of salvation and not totally sufficient for matters pertaining to sanctification. They will say it's sufficient for salvation and then say it's not the final authority for all other matters. Beware of those seeking to redefine terms like biblical or sufficiency to fit their own agenda and elevate their love for man's wisdom and promote their desire to integrate the two. Beware. So first, you have to understand your Bible. Number two, 
seek training in applying the scriptures biblically. Although we are all called to counsel, not everyone is equipped as we need to be, and we understand that. That's why we exist at the Nehemiah Project. That's why we have a biblical counseling ministry. That's why we do Sunday school classes. That's why we have a two-year internship. And oh, by the way, we're also bringing the first ever regional biblical counseling conference to this area of the United States next spring hosted here. It's going to be the Southeast Regional Biblical Counseling Conference. The subject is Confidence in Christ-Centered Counseling, and it'll be April 12th through the 13th, 2004, hosted by the Field Church and the Nehemiah Project, along with IBCD and Dr. Don Roy. That's going to have Dr. Stuart Scott and Jim Newhauser coming, being our main speakers. Myself, Don Roy, Omri Mills, as some people have met, and a few others will do breakout sessions. And it's going to be wonderful. This area hasn't seen this type of training in biblical counseling. And so we're going to be able to be a part of hosting that. And I encourage everyone to take part in that. We're not bringing it here for others. We're bringing it here for us and others, right? Take part in those things. But the Lord has given pastors and elders for the equipping and shepherding of the church. And so there are going to be situations that you're not equipped for, and that's okay, right? I want to show you a quick rubric to help you understand, and I'm going to have Bo put this in our resources. By the way, we also have a whole resource page that's launched that has a whole section about counseling and books for all sorts of subjects to help equip you. And this is going to be there as well. It's called the SOS rubric for the determining level of care. Uh, ACBC <coughs> gave this to us, and um, we're implementing it into the church and a Nehemiah project as well. But just to give you some understanding, this just helps you understand severity, ownership, and support. And so if, for instance, and I don't think it's on the screen, it was supposed to be, but there's a, uh, you'll see when we put it on there, there's a score system. And so if something's a very low score, then that's something that you can handle in regular discipleship. If something has higher severity, higher or less ownership, higher need of support, that may need to go to someone else who's more equipped to help handle that. And we want to have that in our congregation to be able to help do that. So if you go to the next slide, this will show you what that looks like and what that means. So <clears throat> this kind of helps you understand if something's at a level one on that rubric, then this is something that congregations should be able to handle with one another through discipleship. Or maybe a Sunday school teacher, deacons, or ministry leaders who are a little bit more mature and equipped in their faith should be able to handle these types of situations, right? If it, it gets more involved or more um, severe, then we have our ACBC counselors in training that are going through our two-year internship that can help assist our body in doing so. If it gets even higher, we have our certified counselors at the Nehemiah Project, our staff. And then for the most severe, harder situations, especially trained elders, pastors, right now I'm, I'm that. Uh, but hopefully in the future we'll keep having more and more of those. But you see how we can participate together as a body to counsel one another. What we don't want to do is every situation that needs any sort of counseling at all immediately send over to the Nehemiah Project. Because that's not really the biblical understanding and idea and model. We all are to be participating in that together, right? So I just wanted to show you guys that, introduce that, um, so that we can have a little bit of help in, in how to discern what, what we should do with situations that come across. But as we conclude, I'm sure I'm well over time. I didn't start this clock till about halfway through, so sorry. Um, but all counseling requires dependency on the Lord. That's what we want to see. It takes humility. God is the one who changes and he invites us into the ministry of his word. If you are faithful with the word and they change, it is because of God. All glory goes to God. And in the same way, if you are faithful with the word and they reject the truth and do not change, it's between them and God. You are to be faithful. And I conclude, and I'll pray, and then we'll be having time for the Lord's Supper here next. Here's, I want to conclude with what Paul said in Colossians 3.17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and Father through him. Let's pray.
Father God, I pray that today as we looked at your word, that you would strengthen our body, that you would give us courage and confidence and how to understand what it looks like to admonish and disciple one another. That when all of us inevitably deal with the matters of sin and the pressures of life, that we need help from one another. This is what you've called us to as a body, to, to love one another, to encourage one another, and to admonish one another. And I pray that, Lord, that we would do that and we would be faithful in doing so. That you would equip us through your word, that you would give our elders wisdom of how to continue to equip, and that you would, we would begin to see more and more of our body just flourishing and encouraging and maturing in the truth of your word. And that gives us great hope for change. We know that sin causes such strife in our lives, but you've given us the power to be able to change through your word and through the Holy Spirit. And I pray that everything that we would do would be to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.